I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. The singing you've just heard was recorded at a protest against the invasion of Ukraine in Trafalgar Square on Sunday. I'm Alan Rusbridger, editor of Prospect magazine, and today uh, it's my great pleasure to be joined by Peter, Lord Ricketts, who is a former ambassador to France and NATO and a former head of the Foreign Office. And of course, we're going to be discussing Putin's invasion of Ukraine and what it means for Europe and the world. In an unprecedented week, multiple Russian banks have been banned from the SWIFT financial payment system. Germany has reversed its historic position on sending weapons to the Ukraine. And this morning, Freedom Square in Kharkiv, Ukraine's second biggest city, was hit by a missile. At the time of recording, this attack has killed at least 10 people. Peter, you wrote an essay for the most recent issue of Prospect, and the headline was What Putin Wants. And you remarked at the end of that piece how extraordinary that the vision of one man could impose such a fate on his country and on our continent. I suppose a few days after that piece went to press, uh, things have got even more serious. And and I'd like to begin with, with a question that must be worrying a lot of people. Are we really at a risk of a much wider world war here? And how serious do you take Putin's threats of using nuclear weapons? Well, I absolutely understand why people worry about that, Alan. My own feeling is that the one thing Putin really doesn't want and doesn't need is a head-on confrontation with NATO. So there is always a risk of war spreading when there are massive forces in use in the way that Russia is behaving today. But I think his objective is to subjugate Ukraine, to install a pro-Russian puppet government in Kiev. I do not think uh, he would want to risk confrontation with NATO. So we have to worry about miscalculation. And I'm sure NATO commanders are you know, already worrying and planning to avoid that. But this is a very serious war in the middle of Europe. I do not think it is the start of World War Three. You've had a long career uh, at the heart of, of um things like this, um, I say things like this, I, maybe you can't imagine anything that has been quite like this. Is this as serious as any time in your career? I think it's the most serious European security crisis, certainly since the Cold War. 
and in my career, I think you have to go back to um, events like uh, the Russian, the Soviet occupation of Hungary in 56 uh, or Czechoslovakia in 68. Even then, that was within the Warsaw Pact. I mean, this is attacking a country which is a proud, free, independent country in the middle of Europe. And yes, I think we are in the most serious crisis in Europe that I can remember, and one that is changing everything about the way European countries see themselves in this 21st century. It's, it's, it's very strange reading your piece, which I think you wrote about two weeks ago, um, just before the fighting really broke out. Uh, and it was fascinating reading your analysis of the, the different strands of uh, foreign engagement w- with Putin. And, and you drew a distinction between the U, US-UK policy, which was largely based on deterrence, uh, and the, the Franco-German approach, which was to talk and negotiate. Um, those two strands have sort of come together in the, in the last week, haven't they? Do you think that's a, a permanent thing now, that, that, a permanent change? Yes, I think Putin has united the West and indeed wider than the West, the wider world in opposition to what he's done. I think those two strands have some quite deep roots in the policy assumptions uh, of the different countries. I think for Britain and America, uh, we have always long, long had a very hard-edged policy on Russia. In the UK, that goes back certainly to the poisoning of Mr. Litvinenko on the streets of London in 2006. And the NATO um, approach of deterrence, of showing that you're strong, of reinforcing um, the NATO eastern flank, I think was a natural one for, for Britain and America. For France and Germany, both have had a long tradition of having their own lines to Moscow, of believing in negotiation as the best approach to uh, resolving international crises. Of course, both have enormous uh, business interests in Russia as well. And so I'm not critical of uh, President Macron and the new German Chancellor Scholz for trying to the very last moment to keep um, an option in front of Putin for backing down without military conflict. It didn't work out. Mind you, our deterrence approach didn't work out either. And now I think NATO is more united than I can remember in confronting the threat that Putin poses to the security of the whole of Europe. Do you think Putin spotted an opportunity? I mean, uh, there was a period about six weeks ago where where Biden let slip that he thought NATO was less than united in in its approach. Do you think he was opportunistic in in seizing this moment? Uh, I'm long been convinced that Putin is not a master strategist. He is a tactician, an opportunist, um, and many of his gambits have proved quite successful. His intervention in Syria, established Russia as a player in the Mediterranean area again. But in this case, I think he was very, very badly informed. Yes, I think he believed that the West was distracted, um, disunited. Uh, Biden had his eyes on China. Um, Boris Johnson and the British were consumed with our psychodrama over the EU. Um, Emmanuel Macron was facing an election, was a new German chancellor. I think he did see a period of weakness. And I think he was also extremely badly informed about the level of uh, opposition, uh, the fierce opposition at all levels in Ukraine to uh, a Russian invasion. So I'm afraid, like all dictators, he's become isolated. He is getting advice from sycophants, which is what he wants to hear rather than the truth. 
and he's acted on some pretty bad assumptions. Your piece begins essentially with a with a kind of history lesson of how we got here and you say for after 1989 it was taken for granted that the former members of the Warsaw Pact would be normal sovereign countries. You, you, you date 2002 uh, as the high point of NATO-Russian relations but you really pinpoint the, the invasion of uh, Iraq uh, in 2003, uh, the Iraq war, as the moment where Russia lost faith in the kind of um, confidence-building measures that they'd had. Can you just talk a bit about that? Yes. Um, I saw Putin at the 2002 NATO-Russia summit in Rome, uh, which was an occasion where this new Russian leader, he'd only been in power two years, was welcomed by Western leaders to a summit which assured Russia that NATO's intention was to treat Russia as a full partner. Uh, we set up something called the NATO-Russia Council, where a Russian ambassador sat alongside NATO ambassadors to talk about European security issues. And he seemed to lap that up. He seemed to be very easy in the company of Western leaders, signed a declaration uh, full of um, high aspirations for cooperation uh, in the new uh, Europe that was taking shape. And it was a moment of hope. But the thing that happened soon after that, as you say, was Iraq. Uh, and I think the Russians looked on as the Americans and the British, frankly, rode roughshod over the UN Security Council uh, in their determination to invade Iraq and then occupy it. And I think he was learning lessons from that. I think he also felt that the NATO action in Libya in 2011 um, uh, took advantage of uh, a UN resolution and went much further than the Russians had intended to allow Western operations to go. So I think he was learning from that. And there was also, I think, a process of uh, him becoming a much harder line nationalist as the years passed, um, as he tightened his grip on the Russian machine. Uh, he invaded Georgia in 2008 and occupied part of it, which effectively meant Georgia couldn't aspire to NATO membership in any foreseeable future. The Western reaction, frankly, was not all that great to that. And then there was Crimea in 2014, where again, I think he felt he'd seized Crimea and got a Russian foothold in the east of Ukraine without um, uh, very strong Western reactions. And I think all that coming together and the kind of brooding that he'd been doing about the humiliations that he saw Russia having suffered in the immediate post-Cold War years has led him to this, has led him to this paranoid attack on a neighbour in search of a new European security order where Russia is surrounded to its west with buffer states, weak states, pro-Russian, protecting Russia from what he persists in seeing as as the adversary in NATO. It's, you know, this is what has brought us to this point, which is why it is indeed the decision of one man to plunge Europe into this extremely serious crisis. You, you mentioned the the feeling that he might have had that that, um, that that Biden was too focused on China. What's your reading now of the, the how relations between China and Russia are, and what opportunities China sees in this? Well, I thought it was very interesting that the Chinese abstained on the UN Security Council resolution the other night uh, condemning the Russian invasion. Um, they didn't support Russia, they didn't veto the resolution, 
Of course, they didn't actually oppose either, but they abstained, which I think was a signal that for China, um, it's uncomfortable to see a country uh, moving in and occupying chunks of another country. And what's your reading of India's position in all this? Because they too abstained. Yes, I mean, India's traditional foreign policy position is not to get involved uh, in issues which don't directly concern them. Uh, they've kept their foreign policy focus on their own neighborhood. And they've had enough problems there. Uh, and so their instinct will be to stand on the sidelines to avoid taking sides. It's uncomfortable for them. Uh, but Indian policy is already moving quite strongly against China. Uh, I think there's a lot in Chinese policy in the region, uh, Chinese assertiveness um, in the whole Indo-Pacific area that is deeply worrying for India. And they have been increasingly lining up with um, the Japanese, Australians and Americans in a quite a new national security forum they call the Quad, um, which is, again, something that Indians haven't done so much in the past. And so I think this will reinforce Indian uh, wariness about China uh, and will probably encourage them to hedge their bets by um, improving their relationship with their, their Western uh, allies in the uh, Indo-Pacific area. But again, we can't expect India to come out in outright opposition. That's not their style in foreign policy. You say in your piece that if Putin is determined to pursue his goal of reducing Ukraine to a vassal status, Western capitals have some tough choices to make. Can you talk a bit about what those tough choices are going to be? Yes. I mean, my assumption at this point in the crisis is that Putin, having uh, bet the shop on this uh, reckless adventure, is now uh, inevitably going to have to see it through to uh, overthrowing the government in Kiev and installing a pro-Russian uh, regime. That effectively locks um, the West into another long-term hostile relationship with Russia, and very much like the Cold War. If that's true, then I think there are implications for all concerned. For the Americans, um, I think they've discovered that China is not the overriding national security priority, with all others um, being delegated to kind of lower, lower level of, uh, of priority and status. America has vital national security interests at stake in Europe. And now we're seeing um, Americans uh, reinforcing NATO member states. Um, I mean, we're seeing uh, increasing economic solidarity with the EU over sanctions. This is very much a return to the Americans taking a central role in European security. I think in Europe, the choice is an even more fundamental one. And their reaction to it has been more far reaching and more rapid than I expected, and particularly so in Germany. I think the scale and the brutality of the Russian attack on a near neighbor has been an enormous shock. And the reaction has been, I think, to discover that the EU has now to take on a political security defense role at the same level as its economic role, which it hasn't done in the past. And that's particularly true of Germany. I mean, Post-war Germany has been cautious uh, in anything to do with security and defense, building up its role as a major economic commercial power, but always wanting to avoid, if possible, commitment of armed force. In the Cold War, they did their bit on the North German plain, but they never sent their armed forces abroad. And indeed, it wasn't until Bosnia and Kosovo that the German armed forces took any 
uh, role in activity beyond Germany's borders. They always preferred to try to deal with things by negotiation, by economic incentives, carrying the carrot, if you like, and leaving the Americans, the British and others to carry the stick of military deterrence. And the scale and the speed of change in Berlin in recent days has just been breathtaking. To hear the new German chancellor talking about supplying arms to Ukraine breaks a long-term taboo uh, that the Germans have had on arms sales, that he's going to find 100 billion pounds to upgrade the German armed forces, that he's stopping the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. All these things are um, an upheaval in German security policy. Uh, and it's mirrored in other European countries as well, who are scrambling to support Ukraine and to adopt the toughest possible sanctions. I think we are seeing a sleeping giant awakening in Germany. And I think there is now a generation in power in Germany who don't have the inhibitions uh, of previous generations and who have seen that Germany needs to take on its full share of the burden of um, deterring Russia and, and standing behind European security, including in ways of military and defence if necessary. And that's an absolute sea change. Um, so those are massive um, changes in both Washington uh, and in European capitals. And just to finish on the UK, I think Britain has played a, a good part in the build-up to this crisis in terms of being a sure-footed NATO ally, uh, supporting Ukraine, uh, reinforcing NATO member states. But uh, there's a yawning gap here because Britain still doesn't have a functioning relationship with the EU on security and defence policy. And it really is time that that gap was closed. Perhaps this crisis is an opportunity to overcome the taboo in British politics on that. Perhaps we can sit down with the Americans and the European Union and set up a much closer coordination of policy. I think that is essential. So that that was going to be my next question. Really, what difference has Brexit made? Because this is the first crisis in 40 years for which the UK has been outside the formal structures of Europe. And until recently, has had a very testy relationship, particularly with France. But, but looking at it from where you sit, um, what, what difference has this made? This crisis, for me, puts all the other uh, arguments and differences we've had with our European neighbours into perspective. Um, to be arguing with the French about uh, fishing licences um, or to be arguing about the implementation of the Northern Ireland Protocol when um, the freedom uh, and independence of a European state is at stake seems to me to put those into a very much lower category of priority. Uh, and so this is an opportunity, I think, now to, to get beyond um, the Brexit arguments. It's also an opportunity for Britain to look again at its uh, national security policy. The integrated review the government published last year was full of very good ideas, but it took a scattergun approach. It, it set out a whole range of priorities where Britain was going to be the world leader for example, in shifting its emphasis to the Indo-Pacific, the Indo-Pacific tilt. Well, the Indo-Pacific tilt now looks like the wrong policy uh, at the wrong time. Uh, our vital national interests aren't engaged in the same way in the Indo-Pacific. We'll never make a major difference there. And so 
I think this crisis has simplified things for the UK. Our essential security interests are in Europe and it's time we focus back on that and we made sure we had an army that was well structured for the sort of long-term confrontation we now face with Russia once again as we did during the Cold War. There are some big lessons there I think about how we need to adapt our own thinking. I remember Peter in 1989 commissioning a series of pieces which we called a, a new world order. It, it feels to me as though this is one of those moments in history where a new world order will emerge from uh, from the events that we're witnessing at the moment. If you looked into your crystal ball, what do you think that new world order is going to look like? I think you're right. I was very struck by the German Chancellor's speech the other day, which I think one of the most important speeches made by a European leader for a long time when he announced the various changes in, in German policy I've been talking about. And he used the word Zeitenwende, which I think means um, a change of epoch, a change of era. And he had one sentence which struck me very much, the world afterwards will no longer be the same as the world before. And I think that's right. I think that is one of those moments um, where Russia's action has crystallized a whole series of issues. And one of them is Europe's role in the world. I think that the European economic superpower will not now go back to thinking of defense and security as something that other people did, outsourcing its deterrence to the Americans and the British and, and in part to the French. I think it puts NATO back at the center of our foreign and defense policy. So to that extent, it's not so much a new world order, it's a return to a world order that we thought was over, uh, that we thought after 1989, we would not need to go back to um, higher defense spending, large armed forces in order to deter a reckless Russia. But I think that's the position that we're in. And I think for Russia, they have isolated themselves sharply in the course of the last few days in a way that will also have durable implications. And I think we're probably now working not so much to change Putin's mind, which is impossible, but to show the younger generation of Russians who don't have Putin's baggage about the days after the fall of the Berlin Wall and his burning sense of humiliation, but who will see um, that a whole generation of Russians risk missing out on all the benefits the West have to offer you know, from the travel you know, to the culture, to the football, to the dynamic financial markets, the technological innovations. Um, and I hope that the, the strong stand being taken by so many countries now will indicate to a rising generation that actually Russia's interests lie in working with the countries to their west, sharing the continent with them. Uh, and that this kind of hostile confrontation that Putin has put back on the table is not in the interests of those who see Russia as a modern country in the future. So I hope from that point of view, we are looking beyond the immediate crisis to a longer term. But talk of new world orders, in my experience, I've heard them several times in my career. The new world order that Putin is talking about is one where Russia's security depends on the insecurity of all its neighbors and everyone else on the continent. That's not um, a view that we can possibly share. And so I think Putin has brought most countries in the world together in uh, being determined to oppose that uh, more toughly than he expected uh, and insisting 
a return to respect for the rules which have been there for 80 years, which have by and large prevented uh, major wars between the great powers, because that is the only world in the end which will allow humanity to continue to develop, uh, prosperity to continue to grow, uh, and that this idea that we have a return to the bad days of the 20th century at the uh, whim of one man is something that none of us can accept. I think that's going to be quite a powerful message around the world. And my final question, Peter, I walk past the Foreign Office every day on the way to work. Can you tell us what will be going on inside that building at a moment of crisis like this? The Foreign Office is used to crises. Um, there are crises going on very often in the world. And my former colleagues are just emerging, of course, from a, a very deep crisis of a very different kind um, with COVID-19. Now they will have had to galvanize again um, large 24-7 uh, operations so that diplomacy can go on round the clock, both in meeting the immediate needs of ministers, but also coordinating across NATO, the EU, and a much wider group of countries who are involved in this, and also trying to think ahead, not just to managing the tactical crisis hour by hour, but where we want to get to. What are the real principles we should be working on? What do we want to strengthen so that um, we can take on the threat from Putin over the long term, but also uh, plan for a future beyond Putin where Russia can one day be reintegrated uh, into a functioning international community? There's a whole series of different layers to this crisis. The biggest European security crisis I can remember, and it's going to involve one way or another an awful lot of people in the Foreign Office. Peter Ricketts, thank you so much for joining us today. And that's that's all from us. So thank you so much, Peter, for joining us. Thank you all very much for tuning in to hear our discussion. If you enjoyed this podcast, escape the echo chamber and grab a copy of our new Prospect magazine, available on newsstands now, or go to subscription.prospectmagazine.co.uk to subscribe. And at the moment, you can get three issues for just £5. Goodbye, stay safe and listen out for the next episode of the Prospect Podcast. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.